Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Female genital cutting, also known as FGC, is a harmful practice involving full or partial removal or injury to a girl's external genitals. On average, girls are subjected to FGC before the age of five, although this does vary between different communities and can happen at any time from a girl's birth through to her adolescence. FGC is not an obligation of any religion and it has no known health benefits. Far from it. The practice can cause long-lasting physical and psychological damage for more than 200 million women and girls who are affected worldwide. And in some cases, this can include death. This week, in accordance with International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation, Heal Thy Skin podcast will have a special three-part episode segment. Join us as we travel virtually around the globe to speak with advocates from London, California, and North Carolina. Today is part one of this special series, and I am speaking with Julia Lala Maharaj, OBE and founder of The Orchid Project. Julia set up The Orchid Project having spent 18 years in the corporate transport sector. And in 2008, she volunteered in Ethiopia, where she came to understand more about the devastating scale and impacts of FGC. In 2010, she led a panel discussing how to end FGC at the World Economic Forum in Davao, and then spent time in Senegal and the Gambia, visiting communities and seeing incredible change happening at the grassroots level. In 2017, Julia was awarded an OBE for her work to end FGC. I started by asking Julia what she thought was the biggest misconception about FGC. The issue is frankly so shrouded in mystery that there's almost not one misconception. It's such a taboo topic. It encompasses women's bodies. It it talks about their genitals. It talks about a form of violence against children. And I think as a result, one of the issues we've really come up against is people just want to look away. It's so Mm. difficult to just try and walk towards this topic. Mm. It's more than a misconception. It's absolutely one of those issues that's really people can't almost get their heads around. Mm. And that lack of understanding, that lack of even basic knowledge about the practice not only what it is, but why it happens, how it happens, means that we've got to uncover layers and layers and layers before we can get to what's really able to change a practice like this. 
Yes, I can imagine. It's really unspoken, you know, even past taboo. It's just not even mentioned. So tell us about your career. How did you get started or involved in the Orchid Project? So I've had an unusual (laughs) career path. (laughs) I began, as many people do, in the corporate world, and I was really happy in the business world. I was many different things, but primarily I was in transport and infrastructure. And I'm still a little bit of a, a train, plane and road geek, to be honest. But then I really ended up, I think, after about 18 years of working in the corporate world, frankly, going through burnout. And I stepped away from corporate. I think really thinking I would just have a career break and a bit of a sabbatical. And little did I know how much my life was going to change. But it changed because I went to volunteer in Ethiopia. And it was in Ethiopia, really, that I was working on a project about education, actually. It was nothing to do with women's rights. But it was there that I came across the statistics and the realities behind this practice. And, you know, my first instinct was just to look away. I felt so confronted by it. I felt like I was a Westerner, that I had no right to judge other people. I was really at sea. I didn't know what to do. I didn't think one individual should or could do anything. And I sort of made myself busy trying my best to ignore the topic. But as that went on, it became hard and harder to do. And eventually I found myself in the most extraordinary place called Lalabella, which is in the north of Ethiopia. And I met two little girls and I ended up really just thinking, you know, I want to see if I can talk to their parents and see if they could not be cut because the likelihood was that they would be. But I realized in that moment that actually I couldn't do that because I couldn't speak Amharic. I didn't know what my bargain was going to be. What was I going to offer in in order to save these girls? And I mean, luckily, I, I realized really quickly, you know, this was classic rescuer syndrome. Here I was, to all extents and purposes, a Londoner, just sort of coming into someone's issue and thinking I could save two girls. And in that moment, I made a vow that I would do whatever I could to try and support an end to the practice. Wow, what a story. So you went back to London and you're thinking about how you could use your contacts to start raising awareness, but it was actually a competition that you won that got you in front of a room full of people discussing this issue. Tell us about that. I went back to London and was really demoralized actually because I spent over a year volunteering trying to find out more really asking two questions why does this practice happen how does it end and again being met by this silence and this sense of I I was intruding on someone else's issue and it actually just came to a point where I was realizing I had to earn an income again and Mm -hmm. I came so close to throwing in the towel just you know the realities of life calling out to me but I did win this incredibly bizarre competition on quite a little known platform at those times called YouTube and the prize was to go to the World Economic Forum and discuss this issue at something called the Davos Debates 
So it was an incredibly unusual, curious moment. I went from the living room. I had about five days notice to choose to set up a web, get some business cards printed, get lots of different outfits because you need to look the part to go to Davos. <laughs> and suddenly there I was. It was actually at the end of January 2010. So exactly a decade ago from where we are today. And I rubbed shoulders with Paolo Coelho, Ariana Huffington, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, all sorts of incredible people, Bill Clinton. Mm. And it was the most bizarre experience, really, because my whole pitch had been about how do we take the most marginalized, the most neglected, the most sensitive taboo issue that is happening to girls who are under the age of five around the globe, how do we take an issue like that into the heart of the World Economic Forum? And it was a real stark moment of seeing how power inequalities are really at play, how those two little girls that, you know, in my wildest dreams I don't dare represent but what I do dare to do is to try and speak some of what has happened to them. But how would two little girls from Ethiopia ever dream of getting to a platform like that? So that was a real life-changing week for me. Yes, and what a way for life just to absolutely catapult you into the ORCA project as it is today. So tell us about the different types of FGC. So the World Health Organization has four different categories, and they range from anything such as a nick in the hood of the clitoris to draw blood, through to removal of the labia. In some cases, both the clitoris and the inner and outer labia can be removed. In the most severe case, all of the external genitals can be cut away. And then the wound that's left may be sewn closed. And as that wound heals, it seals the vaginal orifice. That mm. is called type three. And when that type happens, there's also a small hole that can be left for urine and menses to escape. But obviously, if a girl is sewn closed, as that wound heals... It means that, in a way, her whole body almost becomes a chastity belt. That area is then sealed, and there are just some really dreadful repercussions and implications throughout the rest of her life. These were some of the questions I started asking when I was in Ethiopia, because the literature didn't explain it to me well enough. And... You know, I, I was really privileged to be able to start some of these conversations with women who themselves had gone through the practice. I did it really sensitively, and it's something I would urge anyone in, in talking about this issue to do, is to check your language, check your prurience level, why are you asking, how, check your tone. This mustn't mm. come from a place of disgust or misunderstanding. Find out more before you start talking with people. But the reality is once a girl goes through type three, she has to be opened again later in her life. So that means that before she has sex, she has to be cut open enough to have penetration. If she is then able to get pregnant, because we know FGC does lead in some cases to infertility. If she's able to get pregnant, she then has to be cut open again in order to give birth. 
and often re-sown just after she's given birth. So this leads to many, many, many different forms of continued violation throughout her life. Each time this tender genital tissue is, is cut, it obviously forms scar tissue as it heals again, often with keloid scarring. There will be many health implications that a girl can suffer as a result of undergoing FGC. And so who is at risk of cutting? We've got various different statistics. On one hand, UNICEF say that there are 3.9 million girls at risk every year of being cut. But those figures go up and up. Of those, let's say, call it 4 million, I think that's a massive underestimation because we're simply not including enough countries where FGC is taking place. At risk figures as well show us that the average age a girl is cut at is under five years old. And then there are, again, we believe this is an underestimation, but there are 200 million women living with the impacts of being cut today. Huge, huge numbers that sitting here from Melbourne, Australia, is just so hard to fathom. So what are some of the physiological and psychological impacts of female genital cutting? There are short-term impacts. A girl on average is cut under the age of five years old. Often she'll be cut without anaesthetic, with some very rudimentary materials. One of the first and obviously most devastating things that can happen is a girl may hemorrhage and die from being cut. She may also get sepsis and die from the resulting infection. She may also get tetanus and obviously that can be lethal. We don't know how many girls actually die from being cut. She'll also have constant infections, whether those are UTIs, they may be kidney infections, they may be liver infections, she may contract hepatitis, she may throughout her life have issues obviously with severe pain. As she gets older, with the onset of menstruation, she may have difficulty passing her period blood. She will, throughout her life, her reproductive health may be compromised. There's one study that shows us an increase in postpartum hemorrhage as a result of being cut. There are issues with perinatal mortality, neonatal mortality to her children. And that's not even touching on the psychological impacts, the trauma, the anxiety, the post-traumatic stress, the triggering that can happen throughout her life, the really basic issue of her right to sexual pleasure, which may well be taken away from her. It's really an incredibly difficult life that many of the girls who've been cut are then consigned to. So in some of the talks that you've done, you talk about the social impacts of cutting or not cutting. And when you went back to London, some of the responses that you were getting from your peers and colleagues was, this is a disastrous, this is barbaric. And what you came to realise is it's simply not so. It is a cultural practice that these families do in fact love their daughters and in some way or another are trying to protect their daughters. Are you able to explain a little bit more about the social impacts of cutting 
and perhaps the social impacts of not cutting or what would it mean in areas or in communities that practices so done throughout the ages if they weren't to all of a sudden do these practices on their daughters? I think for me, understanding and reading more about a social norm really helped me locate FGC as an issue. What I mean by that is a social norm is an invisible code that we all sign up to as soon as we're born into a social network or a society that really we need to belong to in order to exist well or exist in harmony. And the complicating matter is the social norm is is almost always invisible. So the norms that we all have in our cultures are often not taught to us, but are really sort of in our DNA and are communicated with us from a very, very young age. I was talking the other day about, you know, Americans having the most beautiful white teeth that just Mm. defy anyone in Britain. You know, we sort of go around with our crooked, slightly yellowing teeth. And that's that's (laughs) normal for us. I don't know in Australia what your norm is, but we wouldn't think of fixing our teeth in the same way. Now, it's a slightly flippant, obviously flippant comparison, but we're not excluded or our social standing isn't affected hugely by how our teeth look. But Mm. in America, it absolutely is. It's a judgment. Now, a social norm really allows you to belong in a society. And often it's done for your social protection. And this code of belonging allows you to then partake in the activity that that society and that social network allows you to belong to. So whilst for those of us where FGC isn't our social norm, it's incredibly hard to understand in those terms, For those communities and those ethnic groups that practiced for the last however many centuries and never questioned the practice because they've always felt that it is a beneficial practice for their girls. And what's extraordinary about a social norm is you don't often question it. You don't have the language to question it. You don't have the right to question it because the community is the strongest woven social fabric that allows you to be who you are within that. What's really extraordinary, though, is that if you can, not as just an individual, but as a community, if you can start to question and make visible that social norm, you can actually very quickly see if it doesn't serve the purposes of your modern day community anymore. And so if you can work through education, through something as simple and yet radical as having a conversation about what serves you as a community, and if you're able, first of all, to talk about your body and genitals in a way that you have never been able to talk about before, you're on, you're starting to be able to shift the social norm. What's crucial in that is you have to know (laughs) what your human rights are. You Mm -hmm. have to know that there's such a thing as a universal declaration of human rights. And my right to be free from all forms of violence is also your right. And I have a responsibility to both have access to my rights, but also uphold your rights. And this motivating factor of moving away from the individual to the collective to ensure that Others can attain a peace, security, well-being is so crucial. 
because then not only do you uphold your own right, but you uphold others as well. Amazing. So what countries still practice this? So there are official figures that the UN gathers that show 30 countries in the world where the practice happens. Anecdotally, we at Orchid Project know of 45 countries, but I think it's more like 60. Once you add in diaspora countries and communities like Australia, for example, so about a third of the countries in the world still practice FGC. And it wouldn't surprise me if there are more by the time we start asking the right questions. And of course, we wouldn't know it because it happens behind closed doors. It's not something that's discussed. Absolutely. We wouldn't necessarily know it. And equally, I was in a dinner the other day and I was talking to someone and they said to me, you know, this happens in my hometown. And I looked at this woman and she was from a small region in Russia. And I think because we're our sophistication of being able to go out into rural areas, but also to overcome our preconceived ideas about who this happens to and why it happens and where it happens, I genuinely think we're not asking openly the question. Yes. So is restoration or reconstructive surgery possible? Actually, the clinical guidelines in the UK say that there's not yet enough evidence that surgery is beneficial or has enough effectiveness in order for it to be mandated by the UK's health service. I think what it means, my interpretation of that is obviously once sensitive tissue with so many nerve endings has been forcibly cut away. There are huge issues about what reconstruction actually is. And no matter what happens around that, how do we deal with the trauma of that original intervention? So for us, we are so focused on upstream work that looks at ending the practice rather than work later on that looks at potential of of reconstruction. It's simply with the scale of girls that we're talking about, just not the right way to look at what can happen as a result. Yes, that's understandable. Julia, tell us about a favourite career moment, a time that you got great results for your advocacy that reminded you of why you do what you do. You know, why have one when you can have three really quick ones? Yes, (laughs) share. The first was the UK government. And as a British citizen, I was really determined to ask my government to do more. And so I really lobbied them hard to move the dial. And instead of committing zero million pounds to ending FGC, they recently announced their investment would be 100 million pounds, which was just extraordinary. The second one is also a bit of the global advocacy fame moments, which I still can't quite believe, which is that we were lucky enough to work with some incredible supporters who are Danish and based in Copenhagen. And they've been part of Orchid Project right from the start. And again, I was just so incredibly moved and honoured and privileged to be able to travel with the Crown Princess of Denmark to Senegal and take her to witness the change that is happening across communities there. And 
of course, so amazed and honoured to be able to walk into a village and see the little Danish flags that they'd put up, but also the Australian (laughs) flags that they'd put up. Because this is such an issue that it unites so many different people. It unites incredible people who happen to be royalty but it also unites the person who does a school fundraising drive and raises 10 pounds for the work we do and I was just blown away on that trip with the crown princess one home I walked into one of the mothers there and I asked her about the change she had seen and she put her month-old baby into my arms and told me her name was Fatimata. And she said, you know, Fatimata will not only never be cut, but she will grow up never even knowing about being cut. That's how big this change is. So I think those sort of treetops to the grassroots moments still give me goosebumps when I think about them. Ah, and even just hearing that story has given me goosebumps all down my body. It's, yeah, what an amazing accomplishment and congratulations in just, you know, the short 10 years, all of these incredible, incredible things have just united people and brought people together to try and stop this practice. So before you were talking about shifting the social norms and it being about education, are you able to just quickly walk us through the process? So you can't just go into a community and say, stop cutting. It has to first start with educating about human rights. So what is the process that you do with the Orchid Project? So there's an incredible model of change that we really learned from our partners across the African continent, but specifically one organisation in Senegal called Toastan, who've done extraordinary work over the last 25 years. And they are the ones who work hand in glove with many communities, where really they have this incredibly respectful approach that uses dialogue. And it uses dialogue along the same principles that the world over we all want in our own lives, which is respect, understanding and education. So very simply, Toastan used local facilitators from the same ethnic group that the community that they're working with. And for six months, they sit and discuss with the community, what serves them as a community? What are their moral aims, regardless whether they are in Australia or Somalia or Senegal, will identify peace, security, well-being. I mean, these are unifying things that we all as humans want. And then it's up to the community to start identifying what interrupts that for them. So they themselves will start putting the questions out. We don't have healthcare. We don't have education. We don't have safe drinking water. We don't have all these things. And having learned, though, about human rights, they'll then, people will start questioning, okay, well, but actually what else? One of the biggest shifts is around gender equality. This sense of, okay, well, once you've communicated, actually men and women are born equal. And the women look at the men and the men look at the women and (laughs) everyone's like, ah, okay, right, this penny has dropped. And it's an extraordinary moment because actually 
then the women may start to say, you know, well, why when we know the pain, when we know the suffering that we went through when we ourselves were cut, are we cutting our daughters? And actually what happens is you start the conversation and everyone is able to say, well, okay, we had this invisible code but let's talk about it. Why am I as a woman cutting my daughter? Am I doing it because I think you as a man want to marry a cut woman? And the man might say, well, I had no idea it was so painful. Of course, I, you know, I thought it was, but I don't want my daughter to go through that. I don't care if she's cut or not. I don't do it for me. And this conversation goes on and on. And it can last up to two years. But at the end of two years, you give the community a choice. Do you want to stop cutting your daughters? Not all of them will choose that moment to stop, but the majority do. And there's an incredible moment then when a whole community can come together because they're at tipping point. Enough of them have said, I want change to happen. And if enough people come together in that tipping point moment, then you can make a choice to stop cutting. Yes, and they come together as a community. That's what a way to bring people together on one sole focus of human rights and gender rights. It's an extraordinary moment and the beauty of it is other harmful practices are abandoned as well, like child marriage. The whole community comes together. No one is in that model then like the perpetrator. So the cutters don't get thrown out of the village or you don't just pay the cutters to stop cutting. The model is self-sustaining because the whole community have chosen. And this is at the heart of it. It's not about judgment. It's not about other people doing wrong. It's about what do you yourselves want for your future? And that then is self-reinforcing. There's no need in this model for legislation where you lock up the people who've done wrong. Because, you know, once years ago, I was in Somalia and in Somalia, 98% of girls are cut. And the Minister of Religious Affairs said to me, you know, Julia, I can't lock up 98% of the population. So this is an incredibly sustainable model, which gives us a lot of hope. Yes. Now, was there ever a time that you wanted to give up this fight against female genital cutting? I'm very lucky to have a few mentors in this work and and one is amazing woman called Molly Melching who runs Toastan out in Senegal and and she always used to say to me Julia if you fight you're not on the right side of social change even using that language actually puts us in opposition and yes. this isn't a battle this is about understanding that most people are good and working for their highest good and for our own. And without a shadow of a doubt, there are very discouraging days. There are days when the movement's going more slowly than I think. There are times when the just the daily grind of fundraising and trying to work in the model that is a charity you know I'm a former business person that it's uh, mm. you wouldn't the world over set up charities the way that that they are just from the sort of slight begging bowl mentality but I think for me actually the positives far far outweigh those moments and I think it's a little bit it's like life it's that life aphorism you know, the curve that social change adopts is not linear. It's an absolute scribble squiggle. Yes. And, 
you have to know that you're on this journey off the scribble squiggle. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It really, essentially, you're laying your own path because this isn't necessarily, I mean, there's lots of organizations, but it's not a clear path to what is the solution here. So, Julia, how do you think cutting will end? I dream pretty big about this. And what's fascinating about social change is that sometimes it can go much more quickly than you anticipate. So I think that some of the models we're backing are leading to this community by community change where they themselves are choosing to stop cutting. And each time a community chooses to stop cutting, they communicate that with their social networks of wider communities. All it will take is for every one community that stops to reach out to five communities. And very quickly, those five reach out to another five, and that takes you to 25. And then those 25 reach out to five. And actually, step by step, what you're seeing is, yes, it's linear, but it's also exponential. Now, if you then put into that mix the growth of media, if you put into that mix urbanization, if you put in how ethnic groups are intermarrying, if you put into that mix how girls are getting more agency as they're getting more education, if you look at some of the factors that have led to really difficult conversations like misinformation through religion, both Christianity and Islam and animism there. But you then look at how, as people can read more, they can begin to understand religious texts more. There are so many different factors that then begin to come into play. In my wildest dreams, I see this perfect storm happening of a rise of consciousness, a rise of understanding, and a very, very quick exponential shift that really just allows me to dream that the practice can end in my lifetime. And what an incredible dream that is. Share with us some of the achievements of Orchid projects thus far, like maybe some numbers, statistics, the communities that you've worked with. We at Orchid have been really privileged to work with our incredible partners. So we support organisations in Senegal, in Kenya. We support a transnational organisation that's based in India. And we're delighted through some of that work. Some of our partners have now reached over 9,000 communities across West Africa to allow them to stop cutting. We've also held some incredible knowledge sharing workshops in countries like Nigeria, Somaliland, Kenya, Tanzania, where we again believe that communities are the strongest voices to understand their own practices. As soon as we come from outside to tell them what to do, we've missed that incredible local wisdom. So we're able to share knowledge in these workshops that allows people to grasp how they themselves are going to change cutting in their communities. And we've been really strong on trying to ensure that UN agencies, governments, others who are mandated to do more 
to actually do more around this issue. So I mentioned the UK government, but equally uh, almost every global north and global south government we've been able to be in, in contact with to, to really see how we can work more closely with them to ensure that they are putting girls first. Yes. So how can we increase FGC awareness, you know, for listeners, for the general public that may be living in first world countries and this may not be a standard practice in their culture or family? You know, I'd say the same thing to anyone across the planet, which is everything starts with education. And you could do worse than look at orchidproject.org, which is our website, which is full of facts and stories and thoughts about change but I think understanding more about other cultures having empathy with others and really trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes I'm not saying claim their story but I'm saying that it's really only with a level of understanding can we hope to move towards really strong social change. So that really simple mantra of education, education, education. And I think also talking about it. You'll have noticed we use the language of female genital cutting. And the reason we don't use the term mutilation is I learned very quickly, if I go into a community and ask, why did you mutilate your daughter? That community instantly knows I've come with a judgment that I'm right and they're wrong. If I simply use the language of cutting, which is less valued, less judgmental, I've said, I want to come and learn what's important for you. And we have a dialogue. And something as simple as language can speak volumes. Yeah, that's been a really interesting point, actually, that you've brought up about using different terminology, such as not using fight, um, not using mutilation. This puts you on the opposition. So while you may be well-meaning, you then become an us versus them as opposed to how can we do this together and how can we have a conversation. And when you are on the opposition, you're having more of an argument as opposed to a conversation. I think that's so important, particularly in 2020. I mean, we're seeing so many conversations just becoming atomized because it's them and us and polarities and good versus evil, right versus wrong. I think it doesn't lead to the thoughtful, mindful dialogue where change really happens. So what are some of the future projects of Orchid Project? So we're just about to launch a campaign called Don't Cut Her Short, and that will be going out around the 6th of February, which is International Day for Ending FGC. And it's really to get across how FGC stems a girl's potential. If we don't cut her short, we allow her to flourish. We allow her to reach for whatever it is she wants to. It's like that little tiny girl, Fatimati, that I held. This sense she won't even know about being cut in her community. She won't know what could have happened to her because she's too busy getting on and trying to access her education and becoming Mm. a pilot and, you know, doing anything that she wants to be in life. So better world problems. Absolutely. Julia, is there any final words that you would like to share with our listeners today? Well, I know most 
of your listeners might be in Australia. And I just wanted to share quick thoughts that there are statistics that UNICEF gather that show 30 countries around the world, including 27 in Africa, as well as Yemen, Iraq, and Indonesia. Now, incredibly, Indonesia has only just come into the statistics, but it shows 49% of girls under the age of 11 are cut in Indonesia. And when you then look at the figures on the basis of a 250 million person population, that translates to about 60 million of the 200 million women living with being cut in Indonesia. People so often think about this as just an African continent issue, and it's so much more than that. We also know that there are more like 60 countries around the world where cutting takes place. So it takes place in Malaysia, in Sri Lanka, in parts of India, and of course in the diaspora as well. So there will be communities in Australia, in the US, in the UK, in Europe, where girls and women are living with the consequences of being cut. Wow. This for listeners in Australia, as you would know, Indonesia is a neighbour and many Australians will visit Indonesia for their annual holiday and its smaller islands. So I'm just so alarmed to, I guess, learn the statistic and we don't consider it if it's not done in our own communities, but it is just so rampant in so many communities around the world. So where can people find more about the Orca Project? You mentioned the website. What are your socials? Look for us across Facebook, we're on Insta, we're on Pinterest, we're on Twitter, all the usual channels. Please do find us there. Yes. And Julia, where can people find out more about you? I know you've done some TED Talks and you're often a spokesperson in the media. Yeah, that's right. My TEDx is again on the Orchid Project website. I've got a personal Twitter if you fancy following that. And yeah out and about there in the world you are we will be linking that ted talk in the show notes as well so i I recommend all of our listeners to go have a a watch as well thank you for your time lovely to talk to you thank you so much i really enjoyed it it was my pleasure will you have a lovely evening great bye Thank you so much for listening to this special segment of the Heal Thy Skin podcast to raise awareness of FGC in developing and developed countries. In the next segment, we speak with Dr. Garda Khan. Dr. Khan currently serves as the network coordinator for the US and FGMC network. And we speak about FGMC in developed countries. And in the third and final segment of this special series, we speak with Naima Dido, a FGMC survivor. Naima resettled in the US in 1989 through refuge status, and she was the first woman in the history of her family to read and write, and then the first to go on to college. Her experience has guided her to dedicate two decades to women's empowerment and development work in US and Africa. If you share one episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast, I urge it to be this special series. 
The advocates believe that if enough focus and resources is put on education and inclusion rather than judgment and exclusion, we may just see an end to FGC in our lifetime. How amazing would that be? Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay skin-powered. If you know someone experiencing a skin condition or concern and you're enjoying these episodes, then be sure to share the podcast with them. It may help them on their skin health journey more than you realize.